Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to Justice podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week I'm talking to Sue Black, Pro Vice-Chancellor for Engagement at Lancaster University, forensic anthropologist, human anatomist and now appointed crossbench peer in the House of Lords. Sue sheds light on her important yet often overlooked areas of work, which includes reassembling bodies, and the importance of this extremely difficult job in allowing families to grieve and find closure for the loss of their loved ones. Please note that this episode contains graphic descriptions of the work and difficult themes of death, violence and murder that listeners may find distressing, including responding to war crimes and mass fatalities. I'm Sue Black, and whilst I'm Pro Vice-Chancellor for Engagement at Lancaster University, my real job is as a forensic anthropologist and as a human anatomist. And my job is to work with the police and with the criminal justice system, often in the identification of human remains, and then as an expert witness to assist the triers of fact, who are the jury, to understand the science that's being placed before them. OK, and my first question, of course, is what is a forensic anthropologist and what is a human anatomist? Both okay, quite difficult so to say, let alone describe, I'm sure. So if I break down the forensic anthropologist bit, first of all, forensic comes from the Latin word forensis, which means pertaining to the forum, and the forum were the courts of Rome. So anything that has the word forensic in front of it means that it relates to the courts, to the criminal system. Um, that's the Latin bit. The anthropology bit is the Greek bit, which means the study of the human or what remains of the human. So a forensic anthropologist is somebody who identifies the human or what remains of the human and expects that that work will eventually end up in the courtroom to assist the jury. A human anatomist is somebody who generally dissects the human body and learns all about our external anatomy and our internal anatomy. And when you start as a human anatomist, it takes you a year just to do your first dissection of the human body. And that sounds like an incredible amount of time. But when you come down into the detail of every single artery and every single nerve, you need a year to learn it. 
But that's just the starting process. It probably takes you about 20 years to become a real anatomist, to understand the integration of every single part of your body. And of course, that then bridges over into the forensic anthropology part. So do you have to be a human anatomist before you become a forensic anthropologist? I don't think you have to be one, but I think it's incredibly helpful if you do. Because if you haven't gone down the human anatomy route, then you haven't dissected the skin. You haven't cut a muscle or a tendon or a ligament. You haven't traced where an artery goes to. And that physical interaction of being an anatomist, I think, translates incredibly well to understanding the evidence that's in front of you when you're working in forensic anthropology. Now, some people come in just having learnt a lot about bones, and the bones are an important part of forensic anthropology, but of course they're surrounded by all the human anatomy. And that's why I think the two working in tandem are particularly good partners. Okay, and before we get into your job and some of the incredibly interesting things that you've done. Can you tell me a bit more about your training? Because I think, you know, having studied criminology as an undergrad and now doing criminology again in crime scene management as a master's student, you don't often hear people talking about dead bodies, A, for obvious reasons, often, um, but that training of working with dead bodies in order to be able to understand maybe how someone died and the, the, what led to them dying. So can you explain a bit more about that training and how it evolves and when you first um, had to dissect your first body? Sure. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the luxuries of growing older is that you get that opportunity to stop you in your life, turn around and look at the path you've taken. And you can see all the different choices you made. And that's how it gets you to the point you're at now. And I've been doing this fairly recently for, for a number of other projects that I'm doing and realised that probably the most important part of my training I did was when I was about seven or eight. And that was because my father was a tremendous shot and I'd go out with my father. Whatever excuse I could have, I'd go out with my father and he would be shooting rabbits or deer or pigeons or whatever it may be. And my excuse was to be there with my dad because I just adored my dad. My mother was squeamish. So my dad and I would sit outside the back door and we'd skin the rabbits and we'd grill the deer or we'd pluck the pheasants. And so from a very, very young age... I had no squeamishness associated with corpses. Now, admittedly, there were corpses of animals, but they were still that element of blood and guts and, and everything else. And when I was 12, my father asked me what I was going to do for a job. And I thought he meant when I grew up. He meant when I was 12, because he was a classic Scottish Presbyterianism. You know, if you don't get a job and learn a work ethic, then you failed. And so my job right the way throughout my teenage years, very logically, was in a butcher shop. So I learned how to take muscle off bone. I learned how to cut bone. I learned how to slice liver. Right. So from, from a young age, it was just very operational. And it's just like there was because yeah. what I was thinking about how some people see that little rabbit and go, oh, the little rabbit. It's, you know, Peter Rabbit. And you sort of think how sad and there's an emotional response. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is it was quite matter of fact, a job needs to be done. Oh, I see the rabbit. Yeah, I see the rabbit and I think stew. 
Right. <laughs> yes. You know, so 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 there is that sort of element of, a, of I suppose, a, a non-squeamishness um, associated with dead animals. Now, um, when I got to university, um, my first and second years, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But by third year, I had an opportunity to go into human anatomy. And for me, the dissecting room was actually quite similar to the butcher shop, but it was a different animal. So now what I was doing is I was looking at muscle and bone and skin on a human animal, not on a cow or a rabbit or whatever. And I wondered at the time, you know, would I be able to make that step change? And there's no doubt that first time you put your scalpel on a blade and you cut through human skin, it is different. But once you get past that, it actually became fairly matter of fact as well. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm just so interested. Did you get any preparation for that moment? Or is it very much every man and woman for themselves? Good luck. Oh, Hopefully yeah. this won't traumatise you, but it might. Uh, at that time, there was no preparation. There is now. Now we go through a very different process of preparation, but there was no preparation at the time. You walked into the dissecting room, which had about 50 glass tables, all with a body and a, and a a white sheet over the top so you had this mound 50 mounds knowing that there was a body and you were given your dissecting kit you were given the manual and you were told go get on with it and you know it was a real baptism of fire but what made it easier was the person that you were dissecting chose to be there because they had bequeathed their body to the anatomy department. They knew that students were going to dissect them, that they were going to learn. So you didn't have that um, sadness or grief or trauma because you had a contract with that dead body. Because when they were alive, they said, your job is to dissect me and learn. So, so that helped enormously I think, with making that step change from animals in a butcher shop to the human. And then when I was in my PhD year, um, my supervisor was contacted by the police because a young man had crashed his microlite off the east coast of Scotland. And I'm so old. These were in days before DNA. And it was a couple of weeks before the body was washed ashore. So what we had was a very badly decomposed body, um, a huge amount of trauma to the head, which was mainly, we think, about passing ships. So there was a lot of disruption to him. And we had no fingerprints left. So it was quite a difficulty to say, is this the young man whose microlite crashed? And so she asked if I wanted to go to the mortuary with her. And I thought, this is the next Rubicon. Can I cross this one that says this is now a human, but in a human in a very different situation where they've met with an incident, an accident. Fortunately, it wasn't um, it wasn't murder. It wasn't a trauma inflicted by someone else. It was an accident. But my job was to say, can we find any information that would allow this body to be matched and identified as this missing person, which we were able to do? And it is that moment when you go into a, a, a challenging situation, you question yourself, you are nervous, there's no doubt about it, you're nervous, but you very quickly forget to be afraid. And that's when you know you're in the right place at the right time. And what stopped you from being afraid? Because I knew what I was doing. 
and I knew I had the confidence that I knew how to determine whether the body was male or female, how old the individual was, what height they were, to define these characteristics that we could then go to the family and say, we believe this is your son. Okay, and I guess that's a good outcome for you is to, even though it's a terrible, terrible situation and an accident, I guess a good outcome for you is to get a positive identification and find out who it is in order for the family to move on. That's the perfect outcome in that regard because my job as a forensic scientist is not to investigate the crime. It's not to find somebody innocent or guilty. My job is just to be able to use the tools that I have to answer a particular set of questions. And those questions usually are, who is the individual? When did they die? Can we tell anything about the way in which they died? And usually working with other colleagues in a team, your bit of of expertise and knowledge fits in with their teamwork. You're never isolated. And one of the the best pieces of advice I ever got was from uh, a senior officer in CID up in the north of Scotland. And it was when we were about to work on a very, very difficult case. And he said, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Because once you see these things, you can never unsee them. And I mean, just, you know, being totally stubborn, I said, yes, of course I want to do it. And he said, well, the most important thing you can do to protect yourself is to say, you cannot own the guilt for this because you didn't cause it. You're not responsible It's not your job to find somebody else responsible. You just have to do your job and walk away. And I think that was the most important piece of self-protection advice that I was ever given. And it stayed with me right the way through my career. Right. But you obviously had the capacity to be able to act upon that. I mean, in a very small sense, I had a similar thing with going in and out of prisons. At some point it gets to you and you have to find your own way, don't you really? Because there's no training. You have to find your own way to be able to shake it off when you come out of the prison walls and go back to your family and maybe your children. Um, But I think it's interesting you were able to do that. And I imagine some people might not have been able to do that. And you don't know whether you're capable of doing it until you've seen the horrors. I mean, a simple case of that was some of our dental colleagues who were working in the Asian tsunami. And, you know, these are dentists who are, who are used to working in a clinic with live patients. And they were going out to the tsunami, being faced with, you know, hundreds of decomposing remains, doing the dental charting, creating the chart that could then be compared with anti-mortem information. And a significant number of those really found it challenging and became quite ill, whether you call it post-traumatic stress or or whatever. They really did become quite ill with it. And they were honest enough and brave enough to say, this isn't for me, I can't do this. And I think that's incredibly important, knowing when you reach your level that you say, I can't do this. There's a beautiful book written by Dick Shepard, who's a pathologist, and it's called Unnatural Causes. And Dick has done, you know, more more post-mortems than, you know, I've had hot dinners. And you never expected him to be affected by it. But he, he was. And it was just a moment's trigger that sent him down that spiral And he realised that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress. And he was so incredibly brave to talk about it because pathologists often have this great bravado that says, you know, we we can handle anything. 
and for him to show that it's okay not to be okay and to give that permission was incredibly powerful and I think that was a real milestone. And do you think for young people who are thinking about going into a career like this um, would you say that it's an important message to say to people watch out because it is difficult it is horrific at times and actually you should encourage young people to come forward and be like oh little red flag it's not a full-scale meltdown I'm having yet, but I'm feeling wobbly. Or do you think it's better to be like, come on, buckle up? Because I don't suppose you don't want people to go too far one way. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There's a sort of balance, isn't there, of being like, I can do this, you know, bring your resolve, bring your resilience, but then also allowing people to be like, oh, wave the flag. You, you need to have both is the honest truth, because at times you really do need to have that grit and determination to just sometimes keep going. But you have to be aware that if you're doing that, there is a possible price to pay for it. And I can remember Graham Walker, who was our first disaster victim identification, DVI commander, when he was working in, in the London bombing. And we had all those policemen in the tunnels, um, with, in the underground, in ferocious heat, in their, their scene of crime suits and their wellies and their double gloves and their mask. And every now and again, one or two would fall over. And what we would do is that they'd, they'd be propped up against the wall. They'd been given something to drink, you know, a glass of water. And when they felt better, they would get back on in the job. Now, anyone who faints at work, that is not normal to do that. But it's what they wanted to do as well because they are a part of a team and that team spirit in the forensic environment is incredibly powerful. It's about ensuring that you don't let the team down, but the team, if they're close enough, will also be watching you and they will be looking for the signals in you and they will come around you like a great big ball of cotton wool and they will be there for you when they see it's got too far. What's been conjured up in my mind is the sort of, I don't know, if you take a simplistic crime scene, if there is such a thing of dead body in room, you know, the forensic scientists go in, but then something like the 7-7 bombings, it's like war in a way, there's sort of chaos in the tubes. And it was just the image that came to my head of, you know, soldiers on the front line. If someone's down, you pick them up and you're still there and the threat is still very real. And the dynamic situation of a crime scene like the 7-7 bombings, when I'm sure you didn't know whether another bomb was going to go off and um, people everywhere and the sort of chaos of trying to work out what was actually going on at that point. So, so, so there are concentric circles, and that's what's really interesting, is that when, when you're in the crime scene, then that's the focus in front of you. But there are things going on around you. And in a, in a straightforward crime scene, normally that would be absolutely nothing that would cause your peripheral vision to even flicker. But if you're in a, a mass fatality event, then often what you have is a fair amount of chaos around you. If you're in a war crimes investigation, you've not only got the chaos, you've probably got political and security issues around you as well. And so you get these concentric layers where... Um, Almost at times it can feel overwhelming because you're being pulled apart in so many directions. A straightforward crime scene where your job is to go in, recover the body, often you find that doesn't cause problems. But if you have a life of doing nothing but 
going in and recovering bodies, then you can see that that repetitive nature can also have its effect. And you cannot be complacent. You cannot assume I'm going to be fine because you have no way of knowing what the next one is going to do to you and whether that's going to trigger a memory back to something that you've done in the past. So I think the most important thing we can do to train our young people is to expect the unexpected and to say, if you start doing something that's not normally you, you need to ask why. And you always need to have a buddy, someone who can watch you and your job is to watch them. So they will see things and you will see things about the other person that you won't see in yourself. And it's just that sort of common sense support mechanism. You were deployed by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office on behalf of the UN, weren't you, to go to Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Grenada. Can you explain a bit more about the work that you were doing out there? So if we take Kosovo, uh, Kosovo, we were in a situation where the troops were, were desperate to get across the border. They knew that there were atrocities going on in relation to war crimes in Kosovo, but because of the politics at the time, the K-4, so the, the UN forces, were being kept out and across the border. Once we'd got to a position where they could get into the country, we were starting to get reports back. And we were getting reports back of indiscriminate killings so that there were bodies at the side of the road, in houses, Literally, as the troops, uh, the Serbian troops had retreated, you could see the sort of killing pattern that was left behind them. And so we knew that when we were going in, the chances of um, a security issue were high. And we did have uh, a number of improvised explosive devices that were left for us. So it was important that we had our own security as well. So that always made you a little bit more wary. Um, it was in the summer, so it was very, very hot, and it was a, a real alien environment. But if I take you to the first crime scene, I think it was the only crime scene in Kosovo. And the reason I mean that is that once the refugees started to come back, you can't live alongside bodies lying at the side of the road. And so there was a lot of burials going on as the, the refugees were coming back into the country. But our very first site, because the British forensic team was the first team into Kosovo, was a crime scene. And I think it may have been one of the very few crime scenes to be investigated. So this is an outhouse. And it's an outhouse just outside Prizren, which is the second largest city in Kosovo. And it's down in the southwest corner. So as the Kosovo Albanians were fleeing down into Albania, they were passing through this city. And the Serbian troops separated all the men and boys from these refugee trains. They took them, uh, 44 men and boys. The youngest boy was about 14. The oldest man was in his 80s. And they took them to this outhouse. They separated them into two rooms and a gunman stood at the door of each room and sprayed the room with Kalashnikov fire. Their accomplices then threw in straw, threw in petrol and burned the building. One man survived and he survived because he got into the corner and everybody in front of him shielded him from the bullets and he had to lie underneath the burning bodies of his family, his friends, his colleagues but he knew if he came out, he would have been shot. But when he did manage to escape, he, that made him a really important witness to what happened at that crime scene. 
So we will come in and it was about six months after the event. So we have an outhouse, two rooms, bodies in both rooms, six months of decomposition. So the bodies are very badly decomposed. They're all huddled into a corner, so they're, they're commingled. And as they're decomposing, the bodies almost sort of melt into each other. So you get a mound, difficult to separate them out. They're partly burnt because the room had been burnt. And when the roof tiles had fallen, they were also partly buried underneath those. And the wild packs of roaming dogs had also used it as a food source. So they were partly disrupted as well. So that's our crime scene. And what you do is you, you strap on your knee protectors and you get down on your hands and knees and you start at the door and you work forward through the rubble inch by inch by inch till you find the first bit of a body. You clear off all of the, the roof debris and tiles that have landed on top and you start to find the outline of this person. And it's a bit like that human um, game that used to call Jenga, wasn't it? Where you've got all of those things piled on top of each other and you're trying to find the one that you can remove without disrupting everything else. And slowly, one by one, you'll extricate a body and the parts of that body. Your job then is to say, is this male or female? How old were they? Is there anything about the individual that we can tell about how they died? Because our witness is saying these were all men and men as young as 14 and as old as 80s. And they were all shot with Kalashnikov fire and they were all burnt. If the evidence that we recover doesn't support that, then that's not a reliable witness. And so it's important that we don't know what the witness is saying so that when we come forward with our evidence that says all of the people in the room were men, they ranged in age from here to here. There was extensive evidence of gunshot injury and it was discriminate, indiscriminate. So it wasn't execution style because some people were shot in the chest, some were shot in the head and there was evidence the bodies had been burnt. When all of that matches what the witness was saying, then you have a really strong indictment to go to the international criminal courts. Right. And I presume you would work on that. How long were you out there for? How many hours a day would you be doing this for? And was that your first sort of war crime scene? Yes. So, so it was a first for me and I really didn't know what to expect. But the pathologist who'd been out there had said, I can't do this. We need an anthropologist. And that was when we brought anthropology onto the team. And from that point forward throughout Kosovo, there was always an anthropologist on the team because the bodies were so badly decomposed by the time we were getting to them. During that time, so you'd done your first day at work, you're on your hands and knees, you know, trying to find little bits of mixed up body. Um, what did you sort of learn about yourself? Because again, it's sort of, I'm so fascinated in the training and the preparation. You can only do so much, but nothing can prepare you for that. And then what you discover about yourself or what did you discover about yourself in those those following days and weeks? So you learn that, that you have um, endurance because you can't say I've had enough. You know, I'm, I'm tired now. I'm going home. Once we'd start a crime scene, we would have to finish it. So we would work 12, 18 hour days um, because you simply had to. We had no electricity. We had no running water, so we had no toilet facilities. But I, I learned 
that I had to, to juggle a number of things. My own stamina to be able to keep going. It's in heat. I'm a redhead. I don't like heat. So, you know, I was grumpy most of the time. So that was absolutely fine. <laughs> but also, you know, I found that I, I was able to explain to people what I was doing step by step because a lot of the police officers with me had never worked with an anthropologist and they didn't really understand what skills we brought and the importance of the role. So there was a sort of educational part within it as well. And I, I found it very comfortable. Now, we'd be out there for six to eight weeks at a time and then you would go home for a few weeks and then you would come back. So we were on a, a, a rotation and we were on that rotation for about two years. Right. Amazing. And I remember when you and I met at Lancaster University, I remember being very struck at um, it was brilliant to see how much you loved your job, but how you could talk about sort of death and dying with such positive enthusiasm. And I was so fascinated by it because it was great and then made me really enthusiastic about it. But I remember you saying, so sort of going back to all those different bodies, that actually there's a real sense of achievement if you manage to separate those bodies out and work out who they are so that there's sort of a good ending in a very bad situation. Do you remember that conversation? Can you elaborate on that? Because I remember thinking that's a nice way to look at a really bad thing that's happened. I mean, what we never do is we never forget that the body in front of us is someone's son, daughter, mother, father, wife, husband. There's always somebody who's going to, well, we hope, grieve for the fact this person's lost their life. And we have got that responsibility to be able to try to reunite the name of the person to those remains. Because if we can't identify who the person is, we can't hand their body back. And if you hand back the wrong body because we got it wrong, you don't make one mistake, you make two. Because what you've done is you've deprived another family of being able to have that body back. So there's a real pressure on us to make sure that we do our job properly, A, because we have to meet the needs of the court, but also because there is a family that wants to know, I have confidence this is my son you're giving me back. I can now bury my son. And although it is heartbreaking news for me that my son is dead, at least I know and I can grieve and I can move forward. Some of the most difficult things for families is when they don't get their family members back and they don't know what happens to has happened to them. So your imagination goes off into all sorts of areas. Some people will refuse to accept they're dead and live with that hope, and it's a false hope. And what we do is we take away the false hope, but what we do do is try to give a kindness that says, here is the reality. Now, you know, you've got a chance of dealing with the reality rather the, than the, the fantasy of what might have happened. Now you actually know. And that's probably more of a reward for us than, than what happens in the courtroom. The courtroom is about justice and it is incredibly important. But at the human and the personal level, being able to help a family in what has to be circumstances that none of us would ever want to be in their shoes. And you can play a little bit. It, it helps you keep in contact with humanity and it, it retains it as being personal. Right. And but in your 
job role, am I right in thinking you don't have much um, exposure to the families um, of the victims? Or does your job kind of spill out into that area too? It, it varies. So in a, in a standard police investigation, then normally we would have next to no contact with family. Uh, it might be the first time you ever see them is when you're in the courtroom. So um, one of those was the, the murder of uh, a young lady in London whose body was dismembered. She was murdered by her brother. Um, she was dismembered and her body parts were placed in the canal in London. And we recovered the body. We helped to identify the body. We helped to identify what had happened to her. And we went to court. And the father was just the most amazing man, I have to say. And through the police, he'd said, I need to talk to everybody who handled my daughter's remains because I need to say thank you for the care and the attention that they gave that allowed this, the, the truth, to come out. And normally we would go through the courtroom and, and we would not have any involvement with the family. So when the family liaison came back to me and said, Dad wants to meet you, it's the most terrifying thing because you think, what, what can I say? What can I do? You know, I've handled the most intimate parts of his daughter's body. He's gone through this awful trauma that was caused by his own son. What do I say? There's nothing I can say that will make it better. And it was really hard, but he needed to do it. And, and it's something that will stick with me for the rest of my life, that my job was to allow him to be able to do what he needed to do. It was nothing to do with me. It was about him. And could I ask what the conversation entailed? What did he ask you or what did he sort of want to know? He just wanted to say thank you. He, and, and that was the sort of main focus of it that said, you know, thank you for, you know, being the expert you are, for having the skills that you have, for spending all the time you spent learning to be able to do this. You never knew that it was my daughter you were going to have to do this on. But I'm grateful for what you've done to be able to get to this point and then what you've done with openness, with honesty to be able to say in the courtroom what happened to my daughter. And, you know, in the courtroom it was so hard because I had to talk about the dismemberment and the number of knife marks in her bones, the weapons that were used to separate her into pieces. And all the time you're thinking, I have to tell the truth in the court, but I also know that, you know, her mother, her father, her family have to hear this. And you try to find the words that are not hard and that are not emotive, but still allow the truth to be told. And the very fact that he could do what he did, what a strength of character in a person. I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'll ever understand it because I don't think I could have done it if I was in his shoes. But what an amazing man. Gosh, it's so deeply moving. It really does sort of move you to tears. And because, because it's an area we don't, hear much about and we don't discuss much about I mean it's it's profoundly moving um I was wondering sort of as we've moved into the courtroom and you said you're an expert witness can you explain what an expert witness is first of all so within the courts witnesses are usually people who hear something see something um, but you're allowed to have an opinion if you're an expert witness 
And when evidence is being presented to the court that is beyond the experience you would expect a normal person in the street to have, then you can bring the expert into court to explain it to the jury. And because the jury are the most important people in the courtroom, they are the triers of fact. And everything we do is about trying to give them as much honest information as we can in very simple languages so that they can decide on the guilt or otherwise of somebody. That isn't our job. But of course, the courtroom is an adversarial place in the UK. And so you have one side and you will, we appear for either the prosecution or the defence. It should make no difference which side you're appearing for. Your evidence should be exactly the same because an expert witness is independent of either the Crown or the defence. Our job is there to help the jury. But you will have provided a report on your case that will have gone to the court. And if you're a prosecution witness or a defence witness, the first person to, or the first side um, to ask you questions is the side that you're appearing for. And that's usually the easiest part in the courtroom because they're taking you through your statement. They're asking you to explain things so the jury will understand it. The adversarial element, which is the crown if you're a defence witness or the defence if you're a crown witness, their job is to really drill down into what you've said because they want to be able to either introduce an element of doubt, because that may be their strategy, or they may completely disagree with the opinion that you've come across because another expert says something else. So the adversarial part in the courtroom comes in the second half. And that's incredibly stressful for a scientist. Scientists are not comfortable in a courtroom. Lawyers are comfortable in a courtroom. Yeah, scientists and they're trained to do it, right? You're trained Absolutely. to sort of get your head down and work away quietly, not stand in the sort of theatre of a crown court. That's right. And, and, you know, at times it feels like when you go into a courtroom, you know that you're either going to come out as the world's leading expert or a blithering idiot. It'll be one or the other. And, yeah. you know, whoever's done their job best that day will decide. Totally. And I always think when the few times I've been in a Crown Court, it feels very gladiatorial. It is. You know, there's sort of amphitheatre style. And if you're in the old Bailey and it's sort of, I think, probably designed to intimidate, isn't it? You know, it, it is acting and there are, there are actors in the different roles. It's a really intimidating place. And you do find that a number of experts get to a point where they say, enough. You know, why am I putting myself into court to, to go through this kind of a stress. And you will find that a lot of experts just decide, you know, I've had enough. And, you know, I'm getting kind of close to that stage myself now, thinking I don't need to do this anymore. I, you know, I really don't. I've had enough of that gladiatorial element. I don't enjoy it. But um, we need to prepare our young trainees who are coming through that when you get into court, it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough and you're going to have to know your, your, your material and you're going to have to be prepared to stand up for your opinion and back it up. So doing the forensic stuff is not just the science. It's what happens beyond that. So do you put yourself forward as a um, sort of forensic scientist and say, I would be happy to be called upon as a expert witness or could anybody be called at any point? So anybody can be called as an expert witness <clears throat> in a particular subject where um, either the Crown or the Defence feels we need somebody with expertise in this area that can help the jury understand. 
But because you're a part of the investigation with the police and you've written a report on your findings, then you will most likely be automatically called to give your expert testimony in court. Right. And can you say... I'm sorry, I don't want to do it. Not at that point. If it, okay. Where you should have said no was, I'm not going to help you with the case. Once you say, yes, I'm going to come and help you with the case, then you cannot say no to the courtroom. But if they want an expert on something but hasn't given a, re a report to the court because they want someone who can explain to the jury about Bayes' theorem, for example, you can say, no, thank you, I don't want to be an expert witness. And you can then um, not take up the invitation. Right, okay. So going back to family members in court, um, how useful do you think it is? I mean, I've sat in court and sort of watched the tortured faces of family members having to relive the last moments and sometimes having to watch videos, recordings of terrible things. I can understand the need maybe for some people to want to be there, to hear, for that closure, to know really what happened. But do you feel, again, that's one of those tricky balances to actually hear some of the awful things that might have happened? Do you think that's think, always helpful? Um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that because I think it is very personal. Some people will choose not to be there and that's their right because they don't want to know. Some feel they have to be there because they want to know every single thing. How they cope with it after that, I think, is another matter. And, you know, we need to make sure that we've got the support there to help them. But I think it does become a personal choice. They have the right to be there. And it's up to them whether they execute that right to be there. It has to be their choice. But I have sat through some of the most distressing courtroom scenarios where, you know, it's hard not to have your own heart break when you hear it. But I, I have a very conscious way of behaving in the courtroom. I go into the witness box and I watch the jury. I don't ever look at the accused because I don't want to see the accused. And I don't ever look at their family because I don't want to be distracted by their distress. So my only line of sight is the jury, the barrister who's asking the questions or the judge if he asks me. And I have complete blinkered vision, but that doesn't stop you hearing. It doesn't stop you hearing people crying. It doesn't stop you then being aware of that heartbreak. But I try really hard not to add my other senses to it. I try not to see it. So in that courtroom that I was talking about where the, the young woman was dismembered, I did not know what her family looked like until he came into the room because I'd made sure that I didn't look at them. And I never, ever know what the accused looks like. Never, ever. Never look. And do you think, I mean, you know, let's fast forward 50 years, if we ever get out of lockdown. <laughs> uh, we might still be sat here on Zoom, who knows? Oh, no. Do you think the courts, and the Crown Court in particular, and all this sort of gladiatorial, theatrical sort of stuff that we're talking about, and incredibly traumatic for everybody, actually, who steps into that arena, do you think that is likely to change just those little things that you said about hearing the family members crying you know it's the smallest things that can go into our psyche to disrupt us emotionally do you think we could and do you think we will actually one day look at it and go do you know what there's things that we can do that just make it less torturous well I think 
what, what COVID has shown us, that there's so much that we can do remotely. And I, and I think for, for witnesses, then being able to give your testimony in the kind of format we've got right now on a video screen should not make any difference. But you will not then see what's going on in the courtroom. And the chances are, because of the, the um, audio, you probably wouldn't hear it. And, and maybe, you know, for, for, for family members, being able to be a part of that, but not the whole theatre, might make it easier. I know that some lawyers don't really like this, this video evidence because they prefer to have you in the courtroom because you're more on edge. Um, there is more of a nuance in the way in which you, you answer things and behave. And they like to be able to read those because that way they, they can monitor how they're going to change their line of questioning. So that so there is a, a, an almost an extra sensory perception in lawyers about being able to read their witnesses that they miss in this kind of a forum. But I think we have to reform. When you look at the, the backlog that we're going to have of courtroom cases, we have to be able to speed those up. And it is the year 2021, right? You know, a lot of us have yeah. been using video calling for many years before the pandemic. And actually, if one positive, I'm sure there's more positives that have come out of the pandemic. On the whole, it's been very negative. But certainly this has been one of them, right? To show people that the world's not going to end if you do some of the meetings you thought you couldn't do before. In, in reality, none of us ever thought we could do our jobs full time online. Because if anyone had asked us, we'd have said that was ridiculous. I've been doing mine for a full year now. And there are things you miss. Of course, there are. There's a richness of interaction that you miss. But there's an amazing amount that we can do. And when you think about um, criminal trials in particular, and you require there to be a jury, 12 members of the public in England, 15 in Scotland, getting 15 members of the public who can be there all day, every day for maybe, you know, 14 days is, is inordinate. When they have jobs and children and responsibilities and maybe elderly parents who need caring for. That's right. And the other thing I was going to mention was, you know, um, I don't know how widespread it is, but certainly when it comes to sort of domestic abuse or women who've been raped, they often don't want to, for obvious reasons, be in a courtroom with a person who's perpetrated this horrific violence against them. Um, and that makes eminent sense, right? Because you want your victim to be able to be in a calm state of mind or as calm as they can be and able to, so that they're able to articulate what happened. You know, we saw that a lot when women were going out of prison to give evidence, they would just start self-harming, the weeks running up to their court days. You know, it was really terrible. It's such an alien environment for, for the public to be placed in this box, you know, in a courtroom, which is a really daunting place. You've got a funny person sitting up high in, in wigs and robes. You've got people in front of you in wigs and robes and you don't know what's going on. You've got somebody on, on the side that you know has harmed you and perhaps their friends are there. That amount of pressure on any witness or, or any victim is something surely we have to look at. I remember the first time I went to a Crown Court and it was um, Chester Crown Court where I lived at the time. And, and I remember walking out going, that was absolute madness. You know, I went yeah. to a private school, so fairly well educated and all the rest of it. My jaw was on the ground. I sort of couldn't believe, you know, these two bamboozled young men were standing in the dock and the hammer came down. Uh, they were told to be taken down and they disappeared through a hatch. 
like yeah. a sort of like some horrific it was like some horrific time traveling that I'd done and I walked out blinking into the sun thinking that it hadn't really happened because it was so alien the whole situation and often what you find is that when that happens they turn around and say what what's happened what does that mean yeah and that tells you they're going through a process that they don't actually know what it is that's going to happen and what they should do that that is uh, to me that that doesn't that doesn't give a, a sense of fairness it really doesn't and that's surely what our courts are supposed to be about Absolutely. Before we end the podcast, I wanted to touch upon the fact that you have become a crossbench peer <laughs> in the House of Lords. Now, that starts this year or, or when does that start? Because I'm A, a bit jealous um, because I think that's amazing. Um, and what do you hope to use that position for? What's your sort of strategy? What do you, know, what do you want to get from that? Um, so... I have this horrible feeling that somebody's made a really big mistake. <laughs> oh, no, and it's, why? it's either me or the House of Lords, and I'm not sure quite who it is that's made the mistake, but I've got a feeling we're going to find out in time. <laughs> this, is, this is not something that I ever saw myself doing. I had in my mind that when I had finished my, my position in Lancaster, I was going to retire, do a bit more writing, spend more time with my husband, um, and hadn't expected this would be what I'd be doing. But um, I have a, some very, very dear friends who sat me down and they said to me, OK, the, you, you may not choose to do this. It might not have been in your plan, but what does it mean to you? And the honest truth is uh, I, I couldn't care a jot for titles because I just don't like titles, frankly. So that doesn't matter. I'm not impressed by ermine capes. I'm really not. But what I do care about is national service. And I think this could be my national service. The thing that I can do that helps to pay back because I have been inordinately privileged by what this country has given me in my lifetime, in terms of my education, in terms of my opportunities. And if this is something I can use to pay back, then I'm comfortable with that. I would do it without the titles, willingly do it without the titles. And when I was asked um, by, uh, I was interviewed by a group of peers, which I have to say was moderately terrifying, but I just decided that they probably wouldn't select me anyway. And so I kind of just w was very natural about it. And they asked me what legislation had gone through or that was coming up that would really interest me. And that made me think it was a great question. And I thought, you know, I really care about science. I really care about um, lifelong learning. I really care about... Um, being able to look at how we we handle people decently and with dignity and with respect. It was about lifelong learning. It was about science. It was about um, dying with dignity, for example, because I suspect that assisted dying will come back through in legislation again. Those sorts of things where I think um, science and justice and humanity can come together then I think I might have something to say about that. And what I like about the prospect of being a crossbench peer, because I would never have been a, a political peer, never, because that's just so not me. Being in a crossbench, you can be involved in the things that you care about. 
and you can say and talk to the things that matter to you. And they all matter to me. So, so do young women and young women in science and removing glass ceilings and opportunities. All of those sorts of things excite me. And I think coming out of COVID, we've got so much to do to rebuild what we've lost that I think we're probably in a, entering into a really exciting period where we might stop doing the things we don't need to do anymore and start doing the things, you know, that actually make things better. I'm an idealist. My glass is always half full. And that is what was so amazing about meeting you in Lancaster. Oh, um, bless you. And I would completely agree. I think the country does need you, and I think the country does absolutely need your expertise. And I think, you know, more experts that talk about the importance of dignity and sort of injecting humanity back into conversations, into national debates and into those really dark areas where, you know, people's lives have ended or are ending. So um, just thank you. I'm just so I don't want to sound sort of too gushy, but, you know, well, you, you your sort of cup half full attitude when talking about grief and death. And, you know, as you know, I've sort of worked in prisons for a long time and I'm sort of quite close up to difficult subjects all the time but I just loved meeting someone over lunch whilst eating our meat that you just sort of came alive talking about sort of bodies and and the work that you do and I I was really blown away by it so thank you so much for coming on the podcast um I really appreciate it and it's always you know to walk away from a conversation like this feeling sort of inspired and happy is a testament to to what you bring to it Oh, bless your heart. It's always such a such a pleasure to catch up with you. It really is, because we end up talking about things that we don't expect to. And isn't that just one of life's great joys? Brilliant. Well, Sue, thank you so much. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.